And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, I have a deceptively interesting episode today. We are talking about pencils with Caroline Weaver of CW Pencil Enterprises. And I say deceptively interesting because you may take and give no thought to the everyday, the mundane item that is the pencil. You may not even have one. You may not have used one for years or maybe even decades. But in fact, pencils represent about 400 years of analog, the pinnacle of analog writing technology. And these things, not only are they still around, much to the surprise of most of the listeners, but in fact, there's a dedicated and growing group of enthusiasts who can appreciate the subtle nuances of the pencil and who can tell you good pencils from bad pencils. There's an extreme spectrum of quality, not only in craftsmanship, but in qualities and characteristics as well. Not only in the lead itself, which can be hard or soft, dark or light, smooth or rough, but also in the paint that is on the outside of the pencil, the fair rule. I bet you don't even know what a fair rule is, but you're going to find out on this episode. The eraser, this, the qualities of erasers are, are, are crazy. The history of them, when were they popular, when were they not, what were they used for, uh, you, you know, the, everything that, that you can adjust on a pencil can, can be adjusted, has been adjusted, and has probably been perfected, although who knows, we are all striving towards perfection so maybe the pencil has yet to achieve it but i know someone who's going to know the answer to that question and several others caroline weaver caroline thanks for being on the program today thank you for having me well i'm gonna i'm gonna let you in on a little secret here i I, i'm i cannot believe what i'm about to say but i've done more research and i have more notes on pencils than any other topic that i've covered thus far um i was kind of blown away with this pretty simple writing device that has not only so much history, but so much technology crammed into this disposable little thing. It's pretty incredible, Caroline. You've picked an interesting profession. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what, what, what do you do? So I own a pencil shop in New York City called CW Pencil Enterprise. Um, we're also online at cwpencils.com. And we sell pencils from all over the world, only woodcase pencils from pretty much most countries that still make pencils, as well as rare antique pencils. We have sharpeners, um, erasers. We sell a small, I guess, a small selection of notebooks because you need something to use to write with pencils. But um, yeah, our goal is pretty much to make available all of the great pencils and all the great pencil stories that still exist in the world. Well, let's let can we philosophically pontificate about the pencil for a second. Um, I love. Here's why I like pencils. Uh, I like pencils because it's this finite piece of material that you can create with, and as you create, it is destroyed. Like the actual creative energies are thrust upon the page. 
um, which is kind of a cool romantic image when you think about it, because it's not like that with pens. Pens don't change. They just have a little ink thing, and eventually they explode. I don't know many people who have used a pen down to the, you know, the last ink, but pencils are very different. You know, people use them all the way down. Uh, and I think you had a good line in one of the interviews that you did, and you said that. What's kind of interesting about a pencil is that you, the, the, the amount that you sharpen it is exactly equal to the amount of work that you've done. Um, yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool when you think about it. Uh, yeah, it is. They're, they are indeed very ephemeral objects. And, and they're erasable, too, which is, which is my favorite part of these things. Yeah. Now it's yeah. You can't you can't erase anything else. <laughs> now it's been said that no single person knows how to make a pencil. Do you think that's true? Um, I think well, if we're talking in the in the context of um, that essay called "I Pencil," um, I I would assume not because nobody. Well, there isn't a single person who knows how to harvest cedar, mill graphite. Um, find the clay to use in the graphite, make the, make the ferrule that goes on the pencil. There's nobody who knows how to do every single one of those things and um, can come up with a, with a pencil as we know it as the final result. But um, I'm sure there are people who would argue that, but I know I certainly couldn't. No, I think you said in one of the interviews that you could make a pencil. So you're saying that you can't make a pencil. I, I mean, I could make a pencil if I was given the raw materials, absolutely, but... Um, I guess I definitely don't know how to cut down a cedar tree. I don't think I'd be comfortable <laughs> doing that. Um, well, you don't need the whole tree. You just need a branch. You just need enough wood to make a pencil, right? Uh, you can do that. You need, yeah, you need enough for like a slat, which is a slat is about, gosh, it's about four, four and a half inches wide and about seven inches long. So um, I need, yeah, I need a slat that size. I'd have to find a pretty big branch, which would require somehow climbing the tree right. or using a crane. <laughs> so I don't know that I'm comfortable doing either of those things. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to try anytime soon, but if, if given the raw materials, I would be more than happy to give it a whirl. Well, you know, I don't know you very well, but I have the utmost confidence that if you put your mind to it, I think you could get a cedar branch. You could harvest that. <laughs> Thank you. I think I think if I really wanted to, and I was prepared for the injuries that might come with it. <laughs> well, it is a complex process. We're going to get to in a second, but you know, if you, it's kind of interesting. If you go far enough back in history, I mean, someone, some single person, must have created the pencil. Um, how do you think that kind of came to be? Um, the well, the modern pencil as we know it actually took about a century to come to once um, graphite was discovered and it was discovered that there was material that you could write with. Um, and the, the craft of making pencils was something that was, that was originally only performed by cabinet makers. Um, and it was, it was a really simple process where they would just cut the raw graphite into this kind of like rectangular stick and they would sort of glue it into four pieces of wood that it, it kind of resembles like a, a flat carpenter's pencil. As we know them now, it was constructed very similarly. Um, and then it would be sharpened with a knife from there. Um, and it, it wasn't really until the Industrial Revolution that, um, that the technology existed to make the sort of machines that are required to make pencils um, as we know them today. Well, I was talking about way back in history, like cave drawing type stuff. But I, I like cave drawing. Yeah, that, yeah. A single person knew how to make that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The um, I mean the the history of when graphite was actually discovered is a bit blurry. There's there's no solid proof 
to uh, to support that it was it that it was discovered any time earlier than like the I guess like the late 1500s when it was found in England. Um, but a lot of people credit the Egyptians for that. Um, apparently they, they knew what was up and they found some graphite and figured out that they could write with it. Um, and I'm not really sure how they, how they used it even. There's just no, no proof. I didn't know that. So the Egyptians, they discovered graphite. How did, how did that work? According to, according to history, the, according to history, it was discovered in the late 1500s in England. Um, it was, it was found in a mine there and they thought it was some form of lead because of the way it looks. So they called it black lead, which is where it comes from that we call the, the graphite in a pencil lead. It never actually contained lead. Um, but that according to history, it wasn't discovered until, until that. Um, but uh, there have been a few people who have argued that it, that people knew about it before then, but there's no, there's no mm, solid proof. I got you. Um, well, let's, let's talk about history because the history is pretty interesting. Um, because, like you said, they stumbled upon in England, um, and there is a great there's a great muse- pencil museum um, in England right next to the original deposit. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess they found the largest graphite deposit ever uh, in, in this particular spot, and then they, you know, I think it was used for, as a lubricant for cannonballs, which is why it was so valuable. Um, but yeah. Why did they say that? Hey, this stuff here that we also use for cannonballs, let's write stuff with it. How did that kind of happen? Well, the the very original because they when they found it they realized that it's it's kind of like it's it's a kind of almost like chalky really like smooth um, object and so originally it was used to mark sheep um, because they figured <laughs> that you, it it can rub off on things and so um, that that region of England there are a lot of farms and so um, farmers used it to mark sheep and then they realized that it was it was a great lubricant and um, used it for for cannonballs and other things. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it kind of started with the sheep when they realized that you could write with it. And then it was sold in like just chunks in markets, um, marketed towards artists because they could, they could draw with it, especially painters because they could market with, they could mark things before painting it. Well, now how do they mark a sheep with that? Wouldn't it just come off when they took the wool off or do they mark it like on the forehead or how did that work? It, it would come off when I took the wool off. It was, I think, it was used mostly just temporarily. Oh. Um, yeah, because I, I can imagine even if it rained, it would be hard to wash it yeah. out of their wool. It would be so tangled up in there. And um, yeah, graphite is is pretty waterproof. Well, you know, it's it's um, it's funny that you mentioned that they sold this to painters because one of the little tidbits that I found was that the word pencil comes from um, a French word. Uh, pencil to me, which means little paintbrush, and that comes mm-hmm. from Latin, which means um, little tail. I don't know how that kind of worked into it, but little paintbrush—that's uh, pretty poetic. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it's also actually in the same sentence. Um, it said uh, that there, at the time, there were still many different types of graphite that the that the um, that they use, so they must have had some way of changing the darkness. Do you know a little bit about the graphite? How did they adjust, like how dark it is, how hard it is? When did that technology come into play? So that um, that didn't really well. That I guess didn't really happen until um, until I guess well, who was it? Um, Nicholas Conte was commissioned by Napoleon during the war to 
come up with a way for them to make a pencil because they, um, because England, England and Germany wouldn't sell them pencils anymore during the war. And so um, he, and the thing is too, that at this point in time, the finest quality graphite was coming from England. So if you wanted to make a pencil that was pure graphite, you could only do it with English graphite because any other graphite would just fall apart. And so because they didn't have access to English graphite, they used graphite from other countries, other countries where it had been discovered at this time. Um, and he found a way to grind it up and um, mix it with clay because clay could kind of work as a binder to, to hold the graphite together so that it doesn't fall apart if it's lower quality graphite. And he fired it like you'd fire pottery in a kiln um, to create sort of like graphite sticks. Um, which was the beginning of the process that is used to make pencils today. Um, and, uh, and then from, from then on, they figured that if you use a different ratio of graphite to clay, you get different hardnesses. It looks different. It feels different. It erases differently. Um, and from then, the, the drawing scale, the, the H and B scale was developed. Well, you know, I think I jumped ahead of myself because you brought an in, up an interesting point there is that this process, which I think was right around 1795, um, of firing all the, the graphite and everything, that is still in use today. Um, and one of the other things I wanted to mention is that um, I think it was in 1560, uh, there was an Italian couple that basically hollowed out juniper wood, put the slats in there, and then took another set of slats, empty slats, put it on top, and kind of sandwiched the graphite. And that was the first time that yeah. that happened, and they glued it together. And that's still, you know, 400 years later, we're still using that exact same process. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing that all these things were kind of perfected four and 500 years ago. But, we're st I mean, there hasn't been any real major advancements, I guess, in that in 400 years, right? Not really, no. Not really since uh, machines were developed to do it. Nothing has really changed. Even the machines used in Temple Factories are the exact same type of machines used 100 years ago. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So, so do you know a little bit about how the American pencil kind of uh, thing came into being, the whole the American pencil establishment? Um, yeah. So that the, uh, pencils weren't really made in America until the late 1800s, um, which is kind of the kind of like the heyday of the pencil. Um, it was when. Um, they first really started coming up with, with ways to make machinery to make it and became a, a more commercial object. And at that time, it's, it's kind of up for debate, like which came first and kind of the order in which these things happened. But um, Joseph Dixon, who was American, um, started using, he, he had a crucible company um, here on the East Coast. And he was using graphite, um, graphite in his, in his, I guess, company already. And um, he was using graphite from Fort Ticonderoga. Um, and he, because he had access to graphite, he thought, well, maybe he'll try to perfect, perfect the pencil and kind of make a better version than what, what they were making in Europe because at the time you could only really get pencils from Europe. Um, and he was one of kind of the founding fathers in, in developing really, really sophisticated machinery to make a lot of pencils. Um, and he started making the Dixon Ticonderoga, which is the pencil that we know the most in the U.S. even now. Um, but at, around the same time, Henry David Thoreau's father was a pencil maker, and he was also making pencils here in the U.S. And then shortly after, a lot of the larger European companies realized that 
we um, had access to a lot of cedar, which is what pencils generally are made out of in the U.S., especially on the East Coast, that we're using eastern red cedar. And so um, it was it was very fashionable to send a member of your family to the U.S. to start a subsidiary on the East Coast, um, most most notably Everhart Faber of the um, of the Faber family in Germany, um, which is now Faber Castell. Um, he came over and started a factory here in New York City making pencils in, um, I guess, the very, very early 1900s. Well, I do want to mention a guy in this process because I love his name, both his first and last, and that's a man named Ebenezer Wood who worked with uh, Henry David Thoreau's father, John uh, Thoreau, um, and he kind of perfected an earlier guy, John Monroe's process, uh, but I love that his name's Ebenezer. I love that his last name is Wood, which makes a lot of sense, and he kind of made the process more efficient, right? You... Yeah. Um. But he kind of is lost to the annals of history, mostly because I think he's overshadowed by John Thoreau. But I do love – I just love the name Ebenezer. I didn't actually know people were named Ebenezer. And so when I read this, <laughs> like, that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. And so why cedar? Why is cedar the wood that um, that people go after? Well, cedar is um, plentiful. It's also um, it's also not as hard as most woods. Um which which means that it can be sharpened a little bit easier. But the wood grain in cedar is also pretty tight, so you don't have really a lot of issues splitting or with it flaking or um, anything like that. And because because it's it's generally and always has been pretty plentiful, it's, it's pretty inexpensive as well. But I think mainly mainly it's because it's easily sharpenable. It doesn't dull a blade too fast. There are a couple of pencils made these days that are made out of different exotic woods that are much, much harder and much more difficult to sharpen. You'll dull your blade after sharpening it five times if it's if it's a much harder wood. Well, what's the hardest wood that's um that's being used currently? Modern pencils. Um, I mean, there aren't really a lot of examples because not many people have tried. There's a company in Switzerland called Karen Dash that comes out with a limited edition set of four pencils every year. They've been doing it for about five years now, and um, each pencil is made out of a different exotic wood. Um, and some of those have been quite hard. They also manufacture a pencil that's part of their part of their permanent line called the Swisswood pencil that's made from beech wood from the Jura forest. And that's pretty hard. It's definitely, I get a lot of emails from people who are confused by it and don't understand how they should sharpen it. Um, but it, it is much harder. It's much harder to spin, but uh, it's, it's nice because it has a bit of weight to it. The thing about pencils made out of cedar or, um, or linden or any other wood that's common for pencils is that they're, it makes them really lightweight. Um, and so anything made out of a harder wood has a really nice weight to it. It's kind of nice when it's heavier. It feels good. What's the name of the company with the limited edition? Karen Dash. Karen Dash. Do you carry that pencil? It sounds like a sounds like a Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive type of pencil. <laughs> we we do sell it. It's one of our best sellers, actually. Oh no, kidding. Um, yeah. So now let's talk. Let's go from from the penthouse to the outhouse here, really quickly. The Dixon Ticonderoga pencil. Um, now that's it's got that kind of created that distinct yellow school um, you know school pick uh, school pencil kind of iconic look. Uh, do you know where that was created? Because I don't think he invented that, did he? No, no. That um, that is that's a question that's not easily answered because there there are multiple stories that explain that, but not really not really one that is more true than the next. That's the thing a lot of, about a lot of the stories about pencil history is that um, because similar things were happening in Europe and 
in the U.S. while these things were being established, and there wasn't a lot of communication happening because there was a lot of competition. It's, there, it's really up for debate which story you want to believe, but um, a lot of a lot of people credit it credit to um, this is a story I choose to believe is that it, um, the first drawing pencil that was marketed as a drawing pencil in multiple harnesses was made by a company called um, LNC Hardmuth, which um, I think at the time was based in Austria, though they may have been in the Czech Republic. And they um, made a pencil called the Koenor 1500, named after the Koenor diamond, and it was painted yellow. And this pencil kind of became the standard for really, really high-quality pencils in the world. And so other companies started mimicking that by painting everything yellow um, because it, it was meant to be a, a color that distinguished quality. Um, and the Americans kind of picked up on that and ran with it. Well, so, now why were people painting them anyway? I mean, did anyone really care if they were painted at the time? Um, initially, not. But I think I think it's it's first of all a vanity thing. And as as there started to become more and more competition in the pencil industry, pencil makers started to get really creative about finding a way to distinguish their pencils. Um, and also, and also the just because of the process of making a pencil, unless you sand the wood really well, it'll get splintery and nobody wants to write with a splintery pencil. And so either you have to finish it some way, even if you finish it with, even if you wax it or finish it with something clear or, or paint it. Um, it's just, kind of, I'm not entirely sure why that became the standard, but that's what I, that's what I would assume from what I know. Well, yeah. I wonder how did, now how did Dixon Ticonderoga become like the school pencil? How did the, the yellow pencil become the iconic American pencil? Um, I, I'm not entirely sure. It's, um, it's the, the Dixon Ticonderoga, as far as I know, was the first American pencil ever painted yellow. Um, and because Joseph Dixon had put so much, Joseph Dixon was a very wealthy man and because he put so much money into perfecting his machinery, he could make, he could produce more pencils faster than anybody making pencils in the U S at the time. And so his pencils became became really widely known just purely because he could make more of them faster, and they were the most readily available. Um, and I, his his the Dixon pencils weren't weren't ter weren't terribly popular once a lot of other companies kind of kind of caught up and started making pretty much different versions of that pencil. The Everhart Faber Mongol 482 is a good example. The Venus Velvet was another really popular one. Um, until a lot of those companies started going out of business, it wasn't until then that the Ticonderoga kind of came back and became, um, became the standard again. As everyone else kind of went out of business? <laughs> they, yeah, a lot of, um, there was, yeah, I guess kind of after the, after the 1960s and 70s, a lot of companies were merged or bought by other companies or a lot of these, um, European subsidiaries in the U.S. were merged into their their original founding companies, and um, and then yeah, the pencil industry in the U.S. unfortunately has kind of been dwindling since then. Well, there is, I think there is, there are a couple um, factories that still make pencils here, which is good. Um, yeah, yeah, there are three. Oh, there are. What are the three? Mm-hmm. Um, there is Musgrave in Tennessee. Um, they've been around for a hundred years, actually. This year's their anniversary, and um, there's a, a yeah, they've been around for a while. And there's a company called um, originally called JR Moon that's now owned by a bigger company, and it's called Moon Products. It's also based in Tennessee. Um, and both of them, they make they have a factory where they make pencils, but they 
um, they import their graphite cores and their ferrules and their erasers and all of that. Um, so they mostly just assemble them in the U.S. And then there, um, there's a company in Jersey City actually that was founded in the late 1800s. It's one of the one of the only sort of a more sort of original pencil factories left in the U.S. And it's still family owned too. I think it's fifth generation family owned. And um, there's a lovely man named Jim who's at the helm these days. But um, they make their pencils entirely in house, start finish. And they make mostly mostly drawing pencils these days, but they have a couple of really awesome older model yellow writing pencils that I think a lot of people don't know about. What's the name of the company? Generals. General Pencil Company. That's that's a pretty generic name. That is a name that would have been great in the 1800s. Yeah, definitely. The General Pencil Company. Well, that's pretty amazing. Do you carry any of these pencils and these American pencils? Are oh, you... yeah, we carry all of them. Oh, their whole line? Yeah. Oh wow. For the most part, yeah. Some of the, some of the drawing things we we don't carry, but um, we carry the majority of of their line. Yeah. Well, so I'm I'm looking at a pencil right now, um, and as you know, we're talking about all the technology, and I think everyone should have a pencil in front of them to follow along at home. I think it's really important. But one of the things that always <laughs> kind of boggled my mind, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't find the answer um, until I started researching them was that whenever I would sharpen a pencil, there were always, uh, you know, at the tip, there were always two, to the, to the trained eye I'm talking about here, there were always two very distinct, um, you could definitely tell there were two pieces of wood that made up the pencil. And I never really understood mm-hmm. that. Um, but this is from, obviously, the, the sandwiching process, uh, and they're glued together, but it, it boggled my mind. I don't know why I chose right now to explain that to you, but um, I just happen to be looking at it right now. <laughs> So yeah, you... it is definitely noticeable if you really look at it. And uh, uh, the lower quality of the pencil, the more noticeable it is generally. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, so, so when you look at a pencil, you have that. You've got the, you know, you've got. So let's what we've covered so far. You got graphite. You mill that into sticks. You place it between two pieces of wood. Every step along the way, that was a brand new technology. Then you have paint. Mm-hmm. Then you got paint on it. Um, but now let's get to the, to the, the little bit of technology at the end, the eraser. Um, you, you want to talk about the eraser a little bit? How did this thing come yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on erasers. I'm not actually entirely sure when erasers were invented, but before erasers existed, um, people used bread to erase graphite, um, because it, it had the ability to kind of be a little bit scratchy, but also be sort of porous, um, and pencils originally, or erasers were originally made out of rubber and some sort of compass, usually from Italy, um, so that they were abrasive. But also, there's some, there's a sort of like magnetic quality between the friction of the graphite in the pumice and the and or the um, the rubber in the pumice and the graphite on the paper. Um, it's not just about about rubbing it away. The it's their erasers are made basically so that the graphite sticks to it. Um, instead of just being pushed away. And uh, these days, there the most, the very few erasers are actually made out of natural rubber anymore. Most of them are made out of synthetic rubber or even um, various forms of plastic. Huh. I don't think I realized that the graphite sticks to the eraser. That's a really interesting point there. Um, I will tell you, I do know when the eraser was patented. I don't know when, exactly when it was invented, uh, but it was 18. 18- 58 by the unfortunately mm-hmm. named Hyman Lipman, 
who uh, patented, officially patented in the U.S. anyway, the attachable eraser, the attached eraser, I should say. I'm sure other erasers yeah. are around before that. Yeah, he um, National Pencil Day is actually the day that that eraser was patented. Um, oh, the right? day that yeah, the attachable eraser was patented. It's what is it, March 30th, I think. Yeah, of course, everyone knows that. Yeah. March 30th, yeah. <laughs> so what what do you do on March 30th? Um, well, last year we opened, we opened the shop in March actually. So I waited to have an opening party until March 30th and we had a big party in the shop. And this year we, this year we didn't really do much. We did a couple of promos and we, um, what? got a bunch of cookies or we got a bunch of cupcakes that were pencil yellow from a local bakery. And we, we had, we had some fun. We decorated the whole shop, made sure everybody knew about it. Wait, so, uh, wait, hold on. So you opened the shop on pencil day one year and then the next year when you should be topping that with some extravagant party you were like eh, <laughs> cupcakes you went the other way with well it. You, you know that well it's it's hard because our anniversary is the same month as, as pencil day so we have a lot of things to celebrate and we also kind of figure we're, we're going to have a lot of pencil days in our future so um, we have to true. save some ideas for the rest of them that is true at least you didn't close the shop on the uh, 30th yeah so this attached eraser, now it seems silly, but this was actually a pretty big invention. And apparently there's a name for the little piece of metal that holds it on there. I didn't know that. Yes, that is called a ferrule. And who created, do you know who invented that? Or was this all part of the Littman thing? It was all part of the Littman thing for the most part. Um, and because, because it's something that was patented and sort of invented in America, it um, very quickly became the American standard. Again, it was very fashionable to have a ferrule and an eraser. That was a really sophisticated pencil if you had that. Um, and it's something that also never really caught on outside of the U.S. It's mostly recognized as an American thing, that American pencils have erasers and ferrules, and if you get them from anywhere else, they just don't, which is still pretty much the case. Oh, um, wow. And, yeah, so if we get a lot of questions about that in our shop because so few of the pencils that we sell have ferrules and erasers. Um, and <laughs> there's no real explanation for that. It really just never caught on. It makes the pencil more expensive, of course, but um, everywhere else they're just used to carrying around a separate eraser. Or maybe they just don't erase as much. Um, but the, the some of the original um, ferrules, when, when it first became a thing to put a ferrule on an eraser or on a pencil, are, they're really cool. They're a lot longer than how we're used to them now. Um, I have quite a few in my collection that are that way. They're very long, and um, and it also became sort of a thing, especially like early 1900s, also kind of mid-century, for companies to have very decorative ferrules. Um, that was a way of setting themselves apart from the rest of temple brands. A lot of them had, like, the, for example, the General Semi-Hex, always had a, a lavender painted ring around their ferrules. And that was a way of knowing that it was an authentic general semi-hex. And the, the Eberhard Faber Mongol was always a darker color. It was black and had a gold ring around it that was painted. Um, so there were, yeah, there were lots of, lots of creative ways of playing with those ferrules so that they were special. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like anything with like jeans or shoes or any kind of fashionable thing is you can kind of take every aspect and kind of make it your own, like, you know, what, what color you paint yeah. it, like what you stamp on the pencil, you know, what color the eraser is, you know, the color of the ferrule. Um, you know, it's funny, maybe I just erase a lot. I don't know, maybe maybe I shouldn't be admitting how many mistakes that I make, but I, I've never found that the eraser, the amount of eraser that you're provided with a pencil is ever enough. How do you, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Or do you, you always use separate erasers? 
Um, I I always carry a separate eraser with me. If I have an eraser on my pencil, I'll use it. But I um I honestly don't use erasers that much unless it's something that I really really never want to see again. I don't erase or I don't erase it. I just scratch it out with my pencil. Um, <laughs> really? But yeah, that yeah I um I'm not really too bothered by erasers and. I just don't use them a lot, but the um, there is a the, there is a pencil that was made um, was first introduced during the well I guess it would have been let me think about this there's a pencil that's very famous it's called the Blackwing 602 that has a flat ferrule that has a long rectangular eraser that fits into it and they were made to be replaceable and it was also more eraser than what you get on on a normal pencil anyway so it was great if you do erase a lot um but the the first time they ever did that was with a pencil called the van dyke that was um that was a drawing pencil and they yeah found a way to get more eraser into the pencil which is pretty pretty cool now what are the what's what's your favorite i guess you don't really use erasers but what if you had to use one what would be your eraser of choice and why that's a good question. I I still am kind of on the fence about whether I prefer modern plastic erasers or if I prefer rubber ones. Um, there's this one made by Koenor that is a very classic design. Um, it's the LSC Hardware Elephant Eraser, and it has an elephant printed on it, and it's made out of natural rubber. It erases very well. Um, I really love that one, and um, I do like plastic erasers. They are great because they're less messy. The um, A lot of people claim that they're dust-free. They're not entirely dust-free, but um, the the shavings kind of ball up together, so you're not left with this huge mess of, of eraser crumbs. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they can get really messy if you're erasing a lot. Um, and so the plastic ones are great. There's one that I like called the Macho Mars Coon Eraser, and it's made by a brand called um, Hino Duwashi, which is Japanese, and they're really silly-looking erasers. They make a lot of really decorative ones with lots of holographic sleeves on them, or they make a neon version of it. Um, it's definitely not a very serious-looking eraser, but I think that it erases the best. It's not messy. It still has the kind of, the kind of crumbly quality that you get from um, a rubber eraser, whereas a lot of plastic erasers are just really firm, and it, when you're erasing, you feel like you have to put a lot of pressure on it because otherwise it's just going to smudge everything around because they're so firm. But yeah, I think that silly Japanese eraser is my favorite. That's, I, have a, I have the black on black version of it in my bag right now. It's a, a very stylish eraser. Black on black. Now you do know I'm going to ask yeah. you for pictures of all this great stuff you're talking about right now. So <laughs> people follow along at home. Um, so now let's, I, I do like that you called them eraser crumbs that some reason, for some reason is a very cute image in my head. I like that. Is that what they're officially called? That's a technical term, industry term. No, I I don't think that's an industry term. Um, I erase well, eraser dust is what it's normally called, but oh. um, eh, it's not as yeah. Cute. Um, well, <laughs> Caroline, we've been talking for a while here. I want to cut through the BS. I'm going to ask you the big question right now. Are you ready for it? Yes, I'm ready. What the hell is a number two pencil, and why did number two become the standard? That is a very good question. Um, so the one, two, three, four American pencil grading scale, again, that, that scale is one that's really only used in the U.S. was, has been, well, it has been credited to, um, to John Thoreau um, and, and Henry David Thoreau together. Apparently they came up with this grading scale. Um, around the same time that it was discovered that you can make pencils of different grades pretty easily, 
Um, but at the same time, in um, in Europe, they came up with the HB scale, which is the more widely known scale. Um, it was developed by um, two guys whose last names are Hardmuth and Bud Weiss. That's where the H and the B come from. Um, and a lot of people think it stands for like hard or bold, which kind of makes sense because that is that is how it works out. But the H's were the were the harder pencils, and the B's were the softer pencils, and HB is the middle grade pencil. Um, and so anything softer went like B, 2B, 3B, 4B, et cetera, and then it was the same going the other way. Um, and it's been it's up for debate whether or not the Thoreau family knew about this pencil grading skill that was happening in Europe around the same time because it really was about the same time that both were developed. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure why um, number two became the standard. Um, that's a good question. And number two is the exact same as an HB, which leads me to believe that somebody figured that out and realized like, okay, this is the middle. So this should be the one that we start with. Um, that's, that's what I would assume um, that once, once pencil factories in the, in the U S got word that the middle, that this pencil grading skill existed in Europe, that's what was decided. Um, but yeah, um, and and that said, there's really there's really no universal formula for the pencil grading scale. Every company is different and always has been. So an HB made in Germany will feel a lot different than an HB number two made in Japan. Um, they're they're really not the same. So the European scale is irrelevant. It's just more like um, a, I mean, it's a very it's an extravagant spectrum. And so maybe that's what is that what the other countries or other manufacturers are using is just the spectrum aspect and not the specific shade. Um, yeah, there. Yeah, pretty much. It's and I mean there are some standards. Like it's, people making pencils know what like an HB pencil is supposed to look like and feel like. Um, but there's no particular formula for like how much graphite has to be in an HB pencil. Um, yeah, they're 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 kind of comparable. It never really varies more than like one or two grades, but when you try them against each other, there's definitely a noticeable difference. Hmm. Well, thank you for answering that question. That's been bugging me since I was about five years old. Uh, now let's <laughs> now we teased this earlier. You have a pencil store. Is that still correct? Yes. And I'm not even going to insult you by asking what you sell there, although I assume that it's things other than pencils as well. Um, but how many pencils do you think you carry, you know, in general? I'm sure it fluctuates, but, um, like, how many different types of pencils do you have there? Right, let's say writing pencils, because I think that will be a more amazing number. Yeah, um, we uh, – various because our stock changes quite a bit. We're always getting new things or we're, we're losing other things. But um, it generally, it's usually around 200. Hmm. That's quite a quite a selection. How do people know what to yeah. what to pick? I imagine most people coming in there aren't aficionados. So how did how do people know what pencil to take? Well, we do have a, a desk that is specifically designated for pencil testing. Um, in the drawers, we have all the pencils that we sell sharpened and divided by brand. And um, we have a, a, everybody. I have five employees, and every single one of them has become an expert on pencils, and they can make recommendations based on pretty much anything. Um, so for us, it's a very hands-on job because anyone who comes, we do get a lot of customers who come in and know exactly what they're looking for and really know their stuff. But the majority of them want our help and they want to know what we'd recommend or how we might diagnose the situation that they're in. Or I mean, that's, that's kind of our job to know exactly what they're looking for. And for that, we usually pull out a bunch of different ones to test because 
Um, I'll be submitting this on the internet, but there, there's only so much you can write in a, in a description online. Does, nobody's ever going to know how it feels like until they try it. And so um, even when people are new to pencils and they email me wanting recommendations, I'll give them like 10 recommendations and tell them like the best thing you can do is just buy one of each and try them and see, see what you like and kind of hone in on what you're looking for. It's amazing. I mean, are there a lot of pencil nerds out there, like people who really know like the intricacies of a pencil? Because I got to be honest, if you gave me five pencils and said write with them, I couldn't even tell you the differences or why I would choose one over the other. Are there a lot of people who know that inherently? Yeah, there, there's a huge community of pencil nerds out there, um, more than I even anticipated before I opened the shop. Um and yeah, it's it's really funny. I get I also get a lot of emails from people who who are just excited that the store exists, and they're always like, "Oh, like I really thought I was alone, and didn't realize there were all these other people." And there there really is. There's a there's a podcast called Erasable. That's a podcast that's just about pencils, and um, they have a pretty pretty impressive online community of people who just just talk back and forth on Facebook and online about about pencils all day long. It's pretty incredible. Um, and there, and, and apart from that, like there are a lot of, a lot of industries in which people still use pencils on a daily basis. And a lot of people who, who are just stubborn and prefer pencils over anything else who have developed opinions and have a favorite and are looking for like a, a different one to try or something that's comparable or something that's for a particular purpose. Um, and yeah, I, I think just about anyone that I've had come into the shop who sits down at the testation after sitting there and trying pencils for a good five minutes can tell that can understand why they're all different. Wow, you know, I, I got to tell you, uh, this is what you do impresses me tremendously. I'm going to tell you why. Uh, I think. Well, let me ask you one of the questions first. So, so your shop in New York. I read it in an article. You said you wanted it to kind of be discovered for people to stumble across it, almost like a you know the magic shop in the Gremlins movie. Is that still true? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what your philosophy was? Yeah, I well, I was opening a shop in New York where rent is really expensive, and I was also opening a shop that didn't exist already. So I there was very little market research I could do. And I decided from the beginning that I, I could open this shop in a really trendy neighborhood in Brooklyn, but it would be kind of expected in a place like that. And it would have a, people would kind of see, see it as having a different identity if it was in a neighborhood where you expect to find a specialty shop or expect to find something that could be classified as like trendy or kind of twee. And so I, I, um, I, and I live in I live in Manhattan. I live in the East Village, and I love this neighborhood, and I love this side of downtown Manhattan because there's it is it is definitely gentrified. I'm not going to say that it's not gentrified, but um, it still has a lot of character and a, and a lot of diversity. And there are just people on the street all the time. It's highly trafficked. There are just people around all the time. And um, I was drawn to this particular street because it's it's not a street that you would probably like intentionally go to. It's the type of street that you would walk through on your way to someplace else. Um, and it's also great because we're facing a park and the actual street isn't busy and there are kids playing in the street and we have neighbors who we know. And that's, that's everything I wanted in a neighborhood for my shop. I, I want people to to either just be surprised by finding it when walking by on their way to somewhere else, or I want people to come to the shop specifically because they want to come to the shop and then discover a neighborhood they didn't know existed. Um, 
And I think I think we kind of fulfilled that. The street has become much cooler since we opened. It's funny, right around the time when we opened, a lot of other businesses did too. It was timed perfectly, and none of us knew that the other businesses were opening. So it was it was kind of perfect. But um, yeah, I don't know. I never want to have a huge pencil empire where I have ten stores in really fancy neighborhoods all over the world. That's not really my plan. Well, no, I, I guess what impresses me is that. Um, and follow along with me here, because I will come to a compliment. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, you've opened up an extremely niche market with an out-of-date technology that people rarely use anymore. You specifically chose a neighborhood that no one would go to knowingly. You purposefully avoided um, a place that would be popular and have foot traffic, which is exactly what a store like this would need, would be foot traffic. Um, which is all any business person would tell you that you would go out of business in the first three months um, if you were lucky. And you have thrived and you've created like uh, a phenomenon. I mean, I don't know if it's because of all the press you've gotten or because you just know how to run a store or you're you're uh, a secret savant genius or just extremely lucky. But you've turned this into a phenomenon. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible when you look at, at what you've done and the amount of press you've gotten and how many, you know, and I assume how much business that you do, uh, you're like the little engine that could. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive. <laughs> you know Thank what I mean? you. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of the above, honestly. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I did kind of set my. Well, I don't know that I set myself up for failure, but I definitely set myself up for a challenge. Oh, oh, you did. You set yourself up for failure, Carol. <laughs> let's not let's not beat around the bush. You absolutely did. You yeah, just didn't well, fail. No, I had a feeling. Well, the the, the thing is about this. You know, these days there are fair, very few, especially in New York, there are very few things that don't already exist. And so based on the facts that nothing like this, nothing even close to the type of shop that I have existed here already, I thought there's, and, and because there's so many millions of people here, so many tourists, I thought, um, I thought, yeah, it'll, it'll be okay already. And to be honest, I did when I was planning everything and I, when I, I did, I did everything myself when I opened this business. I didn't really, um, I, I kind of thought, you know, if I'm running a business mostly by myself, I want to be able to know everything I mean, I want to be able to know how to do everything you need to do to run a business, but that's not going to help me to pay people to do it and then and then not know how to do it myself later down the line. And so I did it very slowly. I did everything myself. And when we opened, it was just me working there and one friend who was helping me out on Sunday so I could have a day off. And I factored into my plan that it would probably take three years. I had planned for three years of not making money slash maybe breaking even. And then I decided I would reassess everything. And um, it really has been quite the opposite experience. It's been crazy. Now we have a, I have five employees and we have a separate office down the street. We have different space um, to do all of our online fulfillment and all of our other work. It's pretty crazy. I, it still shocks me, honestly. I understand why people are surprised because I'm still surprised too. Now, why do you think you got so much press? Because I would argue that the amount of press that you got probably catapulted you into profitability. Yeah, it it definitely did. Um, And I never hired a PR agent. That's another thing where I thought, like, I can't really afford it now, but in a few months if I need it, maybe I'll look into it. And um, it really was just a snowball effect because we're in, because we're in New York and there, there's so many publications that are based here and so many journalists and people who, people who are in that industry who like the things that I'm selling. Um, I just, 
I just had, honestly, I think it was a slow start and then people started hearing about it and every day. There were more and more people. And then we had a couple of bloggers who came in to buy pencils and they blogged about the shop and then a larger online magazine saw it and then a bigger one and a bigger one. And then we were in a couple of magazines and then the New York times came and it just kind of exploded from there. Um, and it, yeah, it just really was, it was a big snowball effect. Um, it was a huge learning curve, definitely serious growing pains um, involved with that. Yeah, I but, um, so. yeah, there were some very late nights, very, very many sleepless nights in the early days of the pencil job, um, which is, of course, always worth it. Definitely. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely the press helps a lot, especially now during the during the week. Um, we have so many tourists from all over the world who come by. We we probably meet people from at least five different countries on any given day. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty nuts. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask you a couple of annoying questions, and I'm okay because I want to know the answer, and I don't know the answer, so I don't really care if they're annoying to sure. anyone. But I'm going to shoot them at you. So first of all, do you sell any mechanical pencils in your store? We do not sell any mechanical pencils. Oh really? Oh really, Caroline Weaver? Mm-hmm. You don't sell the 1929 fixed pencil, two millimeter lead holder, the first mechanical pencil yeah. ever made. <laughs> We do sell that one. That's Busted. an exception. Um, Busted. Oh, really? Well, no. what, are you hiding? what are you hiding, Caroline? That is a pencil that is mechanical, though it's not normally classified under mechanical pencil category. Uh, it's usually considered a lead holder or a clutch pencil. Oh, a technicality, um, ma'am. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you get away with that one. Um, now, what about what is your the most special pencil to you? Do you have, like, a favorite pencil? I mean, a um, special, like a, you know, personally special, not favorite pencil. I um I definitely don't have like a favorite. I um I have a pretty big collection of new and vintage pencils um that I keep at home. And I have a lot of really amazing, really old ones, but um I think my favorite, just because I love the typography, I love the way it writes, I love I, I just love it. I can't even tell you really exactly why. My favorite sort of classic American pencil is um probably the Eagle Black Warrior from around like 1950s, 1960s era. I love that pencil. Um, the two pencils that are, are to me are the most valuable are a pencil that my best friend gave me that she had um, from when she was in kindergarten. It was her kindergarten pencil, her favorite one when she was in kindergarten. And it's all chewed up and it's really short and it's it's like it used to have like a foil print on it of like hearts and it's all worn off. Um, and I, I have another one that. Um, that my grandmother gave me that was a pencil, an advertising pencil from her father's business. Whoa. And it was, a, it was the last one that she had. It's the last one that she knew to exist. And it, it's used. It's also very short, but you can still see the text on it. Um, and it <laughs> would be from, it's from about the 1940s. It's really old. Um, wow. And yeah, I'm, I'm very much attached to those ones just for nostalgia purposes. But that's the thing about pencils is that they're very nostalgic. People have different favorites for different reasons, and a lot of times it has to do with nostalgia. Well, I don't know if this means you and I are kindred spirits or not, Caroline, but I'm going to connect a couple dots for the audience. You already know these dots here. Um, so you mm-hmm. love the 1950s Eagle Black Warrior. Um, I believe that it was they renamed it to the Murado Black Warrior, uh, it was bought out by Papermate, and they currently make a model called the Murado Black Warrior, uh, which is my favorite pencil that I've turned everyone on to at work because I love this pencil. 
Now, I can't compare it to the 1950s version that you like to write with, but I think that they've got to be pretty similar. And I'm holding one in my hand right now. Does that yeah, do- they are pretty they're pretty similar. Yeah, they're they're designed very differently, but they are pretty similar. The original ones that feel a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very. They're, this is a great pencil. This is this is I, this would be my gateway pencil into the penciledom. I know that others <laughs> other pencils will do that. Um, now let's talk about some. There's some famous pencils that uh, that have been throughout history. You've already mentioned um, the Eberhard Faber Muggles. Is it six twenty one? What's the number? Six. Uh, what oh, the um, the Mongol four eighty two the four eighty two, uh, but there's also you also mentioned the Blackwing six oh two, and you've also called mm-hmm. this the most iconic pencil in America, um, which I think the Dixon Ticonderoga is probably the most iconic one, but this one um, this was used by John Steinbeck, Walt Disney, Chuck Jones, Quincy Jones, no relation between those two. Um, why do you think what made this pencil so special? That pencil is special for a, a lot of reasons. Um, it was first introduced by Eberhard Faber actually during the Great Depression, and it was marked. It was at the time they had already been making drawing pencils called the Van Dyke, named after the Dutch painter, um, with the same sort of ferrule and eraser combo. And they decided to um, start making a writing pencil version of that. And the Blackwing 602 was the first pencil made in America with wax mixed into the core which these days is quite common, but at the time this was brand new technology. And they made, they made the core of this pencil with graphite um, clay and wax, which made it a lot, a lot smoother than pencils that people were used to at the time. And so what made it really special is that you, there, there are arguments that you could write faster with it because it was so much smoother. And their motto became half the pressure, twice the speed, which um, even on the reproductions today is still printed on the back. Oh, really? um, of it but yeah that was the motto for this pencil and so that that's why it became such a famous pencil because it was so popular amongst writers who who wrote things by hand because you could write faster with it and it became popular amongst amongst um composers because it was darker than the average number two pencil but it was also easily erasable and then it became popular amongst people who draw because it was just a really nice kind of like slightly softer than average all around um, pencil that yeah could be used for basically anything, um, even though it was marketed as a writer's pencil. And it, um, yeah, they stopped making them in the 90s because Eberhard Faber was bought out by Faber-Castell and Faber-Castell continued to make them for a few years until the machine, from what I understand, until the machine that makes the clip that holds the eraser into the ferrule broke and they decided just not to replace it or fix it. Um, and so they just continued making them off of the backstock of feral clips that they already had. And um, it was discontinued after that. And people kind of lost it because there were so many people who were addicted to this pencil and would <laughs> only use it. It was just such like a, a cult favorite. Um, and yeah, I, I know a lot of people who have huge stashes from around that time because they were worried it would never come back. But it is back, isn't it? It is back, yes. Um, there's a company in California called Palomino, um, and they make uh, kind of, a, I, I call it a reproduction. Um, they make a reproduction of the original Blackwing 602. They're actually manufactured in Japan, 
Um, and they are pretty close to the original. They're a little softer, and I'd argue that the point retention isn't quite as good, but they are pretty close. And they make a couple of other grades. They make the Blackwing Pearl, and then they make one that they just call the Blackwing that are both a little bit softer, really great for drying. Um, and they, I think, I think that they, it was about 10 years ago that the, the patent expired for the Blackwing 602, and they acquired it to make their own Blackwing 602s. But um, it's great that it, it exists again. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and it's a pretty cool looking pencil. I mean, I would I don't know, you know, besides mechanical pencils, it seems like as as far as the old wooden graphite version, that's like the pinnacle of technology with that one. There's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. There. We often refer to it as the gateway pencil because a lot of people come into our shop and are are, are initially drawn to it because of the way it looks. Um, and then once they try it, they realize it's really amazing. And that's, I think that pencil these days is most people's introduction to fancy pencils. That pencil will definitely get you hooked. It's a pretty cool looking pencil. Um, so if you could design a pencil from scratch, this is the, the Caroline Weaver 001, or you can put whatever mm-hmm. number you want, it's your pencil. What would you, what would go into it? What would it look like? Um, well, I, the core that I would put into it would be the core of the, um, Karen Dash Blackwood jumbo pencil, which is this jumbo pencil that has an amazingly like buttery core. It's really dark. It's really smooth. It's not smudgy. It's just the best. And I would, um, I would make it out of a wood that's a little bit, I've, this, uh, it probably doesn't exist, but I would want a wood that's heavy, but easily sharpenable. Um, I'm not sure if that exists. Um, I might have to design a new species of tree. Um, and I would definitely have it lacquered the Japanese way. In Japan, they paint all the pencils like more than 10 times. They have more than 10 coats of paint on them, um, which is nice because it, if it's hexagonal, it makes the, the edges on the hex a little bit smoother. And they're also just so shiny. It would be a round pencil with the core of the blackwood with heavy but easily sharpenable wood, um, probably about 14 coats of paint. It was, I would want it to be round, too. I think round pencils are just more comfortable to hold. It's hard to find a good round pencil these days. Um, and I would probably have, I don't know, I would probably want it to be painted, I don't know what color I would want it to be painted, a really nice red, maybe. And the feral would, the fer, feral would be... I don't know what color the feral would be. Like a nice brass would be nice. Um, and I would want the eraser to be plastic, though, because if I'm using an eraser, if I only have one eraser and it's on the end of a pencil, I don't want it to be a really gross synthetic rubber eraser like a lot of them have. I would want it to be plastic. Um, and probably black because it shows it just looks less dirty. It just looks cleaner. Um, that's probably it. That's really specific. That is. I was going to say you've never thought of this before, have you? This is, is not really. Actually, pencil. no, I really haven't. Um, well, you're welcome for the idea to start selling your own custom pencil in your store, because I think once you get your wood down, the tree that you want, that's a that's a great looking, that's a good looking pencil. Right. I think I just need to find the right tree. Yeah, I need to do some wood research. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's really it. And, you know, with genetic engineering these days, you could make whatever you darn well please, Caroline. Yeah. Your heart desires. It sounds like a... This sounds like a very expensive project. Maybe I need to save this one for like 10 years down the line. That's okay. As long as you give me credit, I don't really care when you do it. But I want to, I want to buy <laughs> one of the first boxes, if that's okay. <laughs> Got it. It's a deal. Um, well, there's so much we didn't get to. I wanted to get into Scantrons um, and the 
the IBM electrostatic pencil uh, lead, what, what, no, the electrographic lead, um, yeah. which is which is good stuff. This is you, did you, I, I'm like a hundred years old. I don't know if you ever used Scantrons when you were a kid. This is like all I used. Um, no, not really. Um, but uh, well, I guess maybe maybe when yeah when I was really young. Um, but yeah, the electrographic pencils are really cool. Well, th- that's where I was sure the number two pencil. You always had to use a number two pencil on the tests, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, we won't go into that. Uh, well, I think that's a good place to end it, Caroline. Um, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for introducing me to all kinds of pencils. Uh, where can people find you since we've now introduced them to this this wonderfully woody world? You can find me online on our website at cwpencils.com where you can shop everything that's in our store. Um, you can also find us in New York City at 100A Forsyth Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter under CW Pencil Enterprise. And I have links to all that on the website so people can find you. Um, well, Caroline, thanks for taking time out today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening to this program. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. You can find us on the web at www.fascinatingnouns.com. At the bottom, you can sign up for the newsletter. You get all kinds of fun little updates. Check out the future new episodes, all the other projects I'm working on. You can also find links to social media. Facebook is facebook.com backslash fascinating nouns. The Twitter handle is at fascinating nouns, singular. Same thing with Pinterest. If you want to check out all the pictures that we put up for this show and for others, the username is pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun. And of course, for the video extras, you can check out the YouTube page. Go to the bottom of fascinatingnouns.com and click on the YouTube link. And if you want to follow me, Daniel J. Glenn, on Twitter, I'm at Daniel J. Glenn. And on Instagram, I am at the Daniel J. Glenn. And I think that that is it for now. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.